Welcome to Academics of PA. This is Bruce McDonald. This week we have with us two of my favorite people from the field, Dan Smith and Dominic Bearfield. So gentlemen, both welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Bruce. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. If I could have each of you kind of start by giving a little bit about who you are, kind of how you came into academia, and what you do in the academics of public administration as a field. Dom, you want to take it? Uh, sure. So um, I sort of stumbled into this. I was in an MPA program uh, and thought that I might go to law school. And my mentor at the time, Bob Denhart, said, you know, I always thought you'd get a PhD. And I actually thought he was crazy. But when I was trying to fill out law school applications, I couldn't come up with 800 words about why I wanted to be a lawyer. And Bob encouraged me to fill out a couple of PhD applications. And the words just sort of flew out of me. And he was like, I think you have your answer. And, and so that sort of set me on the path to do this. And so my research has largely been focused uh, on human resources um, and also a little bit of the history of PA. Increasingly, I am doing more work on uh, race and gender. That's always been a part of my work. But for the last few years, that's become my primary focus. If I can throw that over to you, Dan, as well. Yeah, um, so I got my MPA from the same place as Dom, University of Delaware, where I happen to be faculty now. Uh, but I was working at state legislature in a program at the University of Delaware called Legislative Fellows. And I was, I went into the MPA program thinking I'd be a city manager. Uh, but the exposure to doing research and data analysis and not even particularly sophisticated stuff, basic number crunching, um, at, in pursuit of informing policy debates, that got me very interested in wanting to learn more about how to do research at a higher level. And so that's what got me thinking about a PhD. Um, I was also getting more and more interested in public finance and budgeting because it became apparent to me that having some facility in that field, being comfortable in that field, and um, it got you a seat at multiple tables because every policy touches some aspect of finance and budgeting. So within that, I you know sort of looked at all the places that had good programs in public finance and budgeting Chose University of Georgia because at the time, the my advisor, Yilin Ho, was uh, working on exactly what I was interested in, which was state-level fiscal institutions. He was working on rainy day funds, and uh, under his tutelage and at the University of Georgia, I developed a research agenda in balanced budget requirements and other fiscal institutions. That's what I spent most of my early part of my academic career on. I still use those data in research, but I'm primarily moving into more financial management topics, fiscal condition, uh, budget systems. Um, again, I still think fiscal institutions are interesting and important, but I'm a lot more interested in uh, financial management and accounting questions, particularly as I get more and more exposure. I was a member of the Governmental Accounting Standards Advisory Council. I consulted in accounting aspects uh, with organizations. So that's the direction I'm moving in now. Now, did the two of you actually know each other when you were both MPA students since y'all both went to Delaware? No, we were different years. I, yeah, okay. we're, we're a couple of years apart. Yeah. I will say this is probably going to be the only time Dan and I are both uh, sons of police officers, and I too thought I wanted to be a city manager. And we're both from New Jersey. Yep. Huh. There's so many questions I want to ask about that. <laughs> well, I'm a... He's from North Jersey. I'm from South Jersey. In New Jersey, that's known as the Union and the Confederacy. Um, <laughs> in fact, the part of New Jersey I'm from is, at the time was so low on diversity. Uh, there's an actual newspaper article. I don't know if I shared it with you, Dom. I will if I haven't. Uh, there's a newspaper article written about my dad as being the only black police officer in South Jersey across all agencies at the time. Wow. Yeah. Man. The reason we had one of the two of you to come on was to be able to kind of talk about the status of black men within public administration and kind of how we as a field can do better at recruiting people into it. 
and supporting them once they're there is kind of an entryway into that. I'm kind of curious about, you know, since both of your dads were police officers, did that help drive kind of your interest in a public service career? And do you actually know why your dads became police officers? Especially, I mean, Dan, you said yours was the only black officer in South Jersey. I'm kind of curious what the story is behind that or if that contributed to what y'all did. I I mean, I could say for me, um, growing up in South Jersey, my dad was, again, the cop. My mom was a nurse. Technically, the hospital she worked for was, you know, a company, but I viewed it as public service. Um, I actually never really had an interest in a sort of a non-public service role. I briefly did after I went to college. Um, you know, I took some business courses. Really, in college was the first time I learned anything about business per se. Um, I was very interested in a public service pretty much most of my upbringing, whether I didn't necessarily knew if that meant working for government. I didn't really know what that meant, but I definitely was drawn to public service as a concept, uh, for sure. Um, and, you know, like I said, like all college students, I was pulled in somewhat different directions at different times. I actually started my undergraduate computer, my undergraduate career as a computer science major. Um, I made what turned out to be a bad bet. I thought everybody was getting a computer science degree and that everybody would be a dime a dozen and there'd be no future in that career. But, um, turns out I could be, you know, working for, you know, who knows, Twitter and making five times the salary now. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, so there were times I was pulled in somewhat different directions, but in general, I've always been attracted to public service. And as for my dad, literally he became a cop because his uncle, my great uncle was a cop and he saw him in his uniform and that just awed him so much. He wanted to wear the uniform. I love that. Yeah, I think, um, like Dan, so I, I sort of bounce back and forth. Um, my mom, for most of my time growing up, uh, before she switched to the private sector, worked at the Boy Scouts. So I also came from what a, I would describe as a public service household. Um, I will say my dad, even though my brother is a police officer, my dad was pretty clear that he didn't necessarily want us to become police officers. If we were going to do this, he encouraged us to either, one, join the fire department, because cops think that firemen have it easy, <laughs> uh, um, to become a city manager. And so I was torn between that. My under my undergrad degree was in English, so I thought I might want to be a writer for a while, but then I realized I'd like to eat. And so I went back and forth until I sort of found this space that made sense to me. And like I said, I really thought I was going to be a city manager, um, but it turns out I don't think that I particularly have the temperament for that job. But I really did dig the writing and research. And I say this is my way of being a writer. Um, That's my primary identity. Uh, And I get to write about things I care about. As for why my dad became uh, a police officer, um, my dad is a uh, former Marine Vietnam veteran. And uh, when he came back to New Jersey, uh, work was scarce. Newark... um, was not in a great shape and he saw his old neighborhood and thought he could contribute. And so they did have a change in policy where, uh, cause they used to have pretty strict residency requirements and they opened up um, that you could become a police officer anywhere in the County, which opened up a lot more job opportunities for him. And he found this place called Montclair, went to the Academy, did really well in, it honestly changed my family's life. Sorry, I'm so distracted because I, I want to take the conversation in a completely different direction. No because, um, but I'll, I'll stick to uh, why we were here because I think that's also probably more important than my own curiosity. Thinking about who you both are, you're both black men in the academy. Over the summer, there was the Twitter hashtag that was uh, trending about Black in the Academy, the experiences uh, that different academics had and that they encountered. There was, of course, the Black Lives Movement and everything that's been going on around that over the past couple of years, but especially this year. There's been some discussions kind of going on within MP programs about the racial diversity that surrounds 
not just the faculty, but also the students. You know, how do we get students into the programs that are going to go out and help create those better managing and better running institutions uh, that are also going to help reflect the community itself? As a MPA director, or I should say former MPA director, I know my experience was always kind of a little bit of a challenge in terms of I could usually fairly easily recruit uh, black women to come into the MPA program, but I always had a harder time trying to recruit black men. And I know several other programs that have had the same story. If you don't mind, Dom, I'll... um, Go ahead. I think it's actually... If you look at fields that want to have black representation, they're doing a pretty good job of doing it. And it's a pretty standard model. Um, You know, it's probably done best at HBCUs, but it's also done at well-resourced comprehensive universities that aren't necessarily HBCUs. Things that work really well are things like visit weekends, having students come in, have a really experience a place for a few days. Um, targeted outreach, talking to their mentors, their professors, their advisors. These are all things that they work really well in a lot of fields, banking, medicine. We're seeing, obviously, no field has the representation we would like to see, but you can see, you can point to examples of highly successful recruiting programs with a pipeline. You talk to the students' advisors and their mentors. You bring them in for visit days. You get them in an internship pipeline. In that internship pipeline, and there's uh, there's lots of sort of third party programs that assist universities with this, like inroads in the business world. You get them in that pipeline. You make sure those internships are substantial and good, and that there's some performance metrics related to them, or you're not going to send students there anymore. So I understand that. It's a little different in banking and medicine and other fields because those organizations have money to put into the pot to assist universities. But the fact is, if there's a will, there's a way. Um, And there are universities that might have had more success recruiting in the past when they had visit days, and they don't anymore because it's just one of those things. It's a budget item that is easy to let go. I think if we wanted to get really serious about this and and knowing that many MPA programs do not, another commonality between Dom and I is we're both on COPRA. So we know that a lot of university MPA programs are not that well-resourced. I totally understand that. We might have to think about a bigger thing. There is the PPIA program. I I do want to call that out as a good program. Um, but we might need to think bigger, and if, especially in public administration, right? So PPIA is public affairs, public policy. A lot of them think more policy than administration. But if we want to create an MPA pipeline for underrepresented minorities, we might have to think of building some sort of external resource field outside of this university or that one. It might have to be an endowment that's bigger than all of us. Um, but that, and that's, it works. It, it works in a lot of fields. And so I, I think the models there staring us in the face. Um, and I think we could do it. And I, I don't think that, I think even though Dom and I have a lot of commonalities between us, I don't think you necessarily have to worry about losing black men to PhDs if you bring them in the MPA programs. I think he and I are just sort of in an unusual state where we were, you know, looking for things that could lead us in that direction. I think if we could get more black men into MPA programs, they would go out and be public servants and it would be a success. No, I think I totally agree with that. Um, uh, to, I know there's a lot of talk, or at least there used to be a lot of talk about the Delaware model. Um, and But I do want to give a hat tip to Delaware because when I was looking at programs, very much as Dan said, like Delaware did this right. They went to, they had students, a lot of former students who went to HBCUs. Uh, they went down for a recruitment weekend. So you would see people who look like you, people that you knew that uh, were honest and young and could really tell you what it was like to be at that place. They brought a bunch of us in for a minority recruitment weekend. So we came in as a cohort. And as we left, 
like everybody knew they were going to have a bunch of options. And we just started calling each other saying, so where are you going to go? And that helped a bunch of us to opt into Delaware because we knew we wouldn't be the only ones. We wouldn't be isolated. So, and I think at the time, Delaware had like some minority recruitment number that was just off the charts. They were doing better than any other department, even at the university, let alone around the country. But bringing us in as a group, as a cohort, we came in with a sense of community and we didn't feel isolated. And so it made it very easy um, to feel comfortable here there and to thrive there. And I think I may be the only person out of my cohort who went and got a PhD. Everybody else actually did go directly into the profession. Um, but having that group really was a game changer for me. And to be clear, um, I, you know, I sort of hinted at this, it's hard to sustain those programs. That specific program Dom went through, we can only do a smaller version of that now because one of our past presidents reduced the resources available to do that. And so Dom was there when the resources were there. In the middle, sort of the interim period, they were taken away or at least diminished. Now we have a president who is very, very committed and probably would bring it back. But then, of course, we got here with a global pandemic. And like it was successful, not just for my year. So we met with the second years and there was a, a large group of minority students. We recruited a large group and we left. And so it just became, like I said, this big sense of community. It wasn't a one shot deal. They were very committed to it. I know the things that I've or the things that I did. There's a number of HBC use in North Carolina and I would go and go into whatever classroom that they would let me and sit there and talk with students and talk with them after class and bring them to campus. Nine times out of 10, I always got the response of show me who on your faculty is a minority themselves. And you know, there was 15 of us, but only two were black. And they were looking like, well, you have a fairly limited you know, connection to us of people who are going to understand our problems. And you can look at some of the other programs in the state and there's a much higher degree representation. Or I would get the response that, well, how much does somebody who has an MPA makes versus somebody who has an MBA? Given the competition to bring people in, the sheer number of times that I lost somebody to an MBA program or to an accounting program because they would be able to outmake somebody from the MPA side. And that's what was important to them and their family, even though they had the public service motivation itself. I will say also, and times are dramatically different. So when I got my MPA, it was free and that made a big difference. Oh, wow. um, so I could put off future earnings, you know, uh, because I wasn't carrying this extra debt. And I realized that's not an option for a lot of people now. And so students, particularly first-generation students, and I think this is across race and ethnicity, uh, but I know for a lot of first-generation students, coming out and being able to make as much money as you can to uh, deal with your debt quickly and deal with whatever family obligations you have, that's very real. It's hard to compete against that. And so I also think the field has to be committed to, and I tell my students this all the time, I want to give you a high quality education and make it as cheap as I possibly can, because that makes a difference. It does. Um, and um, in case we don't get to this later, I just want to bring this up now. Um, you mentioned how faculties are not diverse. I mean, Dom and I are constantly mistaken for one another. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, yeah. Uh, so that's that's kind of the state of diversity in our field, I would say, as far as black men go. Even when we've been in the same room. In the same room. Y'all don't really look alike. No, though. we don't. That, that, that's never really mattered much. <laughs> <laughs> And I think there's good research on uh, people struggling across races to identify faces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but if you're talking about academic public administration in the United States, yeah, um, that's uh, there should be really no problem at all uh, distinguishing, and there should be enough where it's not really even a possibility. Yeah, yeah, I'm not even exaggerating. We've been in the same room when it's happened. Yeah, one one very infamous event. Uh, yep. <laughs> we, we don't need to go into. I, yeah. 
I think the person who did that is still alive, so we don't need to go there. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. If part of this is how to improve and bring more people in, is to kind of provide those institutions like the public policy and international affairs, or to make the academic experience cheaper for people to be able to come in. Both of those are fairly high bars. I'm trying to think of there. I don't even think I know where I would start trying to achieve either one of those. I mean, we could keep relying on individual programs and universities to do what they can, you know, but there's very few places where the trajectory of resources is upward. Um, Right. So, I mean, we can continue to do that and try our hardest, but with that, aside from lack of resources, what that often means is um, putting an inordinate amount of pressure on the current underrepresented faculty who are on the treadmill toward tenure or the treadmill toward full professor to spend time identifying prospects, meeting with prospects. It's just more uncompensated time. And Mm -hmm. it can be, it can be very substantial. So, I mean, we can keep doing that and probably never really change the outcome or we can think bigger. Um, And that, literally creating an endowment or something. Um, you know, it could be through one of our organizations, uh, it could be NASPA, it could be something else. I mean, someone would have to do it. This would be someone who's you know, got the energy and the skills. Fundraising is a real skill. Not everyone's got it. Um, you know, mobilizing resources towards fundraising is a real skill. Finding the people to do it. I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying, I think that's what it's going to take if we want real change. If, you know, and otherwise we're going to continue on this situation where every program has its good years and its bad years, but there's no systemic, you know, sort of progress towards having really good years all the time. Yeah. So to piggyback on that, I think one, you know, we can think about pooling our resources. Uh, there are a couple of places where resources would be able to, uh, even if you did something like put together a summer program to expose minorities to the field and bring in a couple of faculty from around the country to contribute to a class or lecture series or so or so forth. Also, and Bruce, you mentioned something that I think this is really important. When I arrived at Delaware, there was one black professor. And they hired another one as I was leaving. And so it Dan touched on this. It can't be the responsibility of the minority professors to do this. And that's where right. it f- often falls. I was very impressed by Delaware. Delaware w- was very honest. They didn't have a diverse faculty. But by bringing us into it as a cohort and giving us a sense of community and support while also saying, look, faculty members will invest in you. My, like I said, my mentor was Bob Denhart. Um, Bob and I were not exactly a lot alike but he was committed to watching me succeed. And that has to be the message. I think I had, um, even when I got to Rutgers, it wasn't particularly diverse at the time, but I had people who were willing to invest in me. And so I, I understand the challenge that people, when they hear that question, well, you don't have a lot of re- representation and that can sort of throw them. The answer has to be, you are absolutely right. That is a challenge, but we are willing to commit to you. We are willing to invest in you, and we will build an infrastructure to deal with some of the actual, our own shortcomings. Yeah, and um, I like Dom's idea of pooling resources in the sense of, and the other thing was we really shouldn't be viewing this as competition because, again, looking at programs, there are some that do compete with each other, and uh, Bruce, you're in North Carolina where Every university there has an MPA program. That's an unusual environment. Um, yeah, there's a lot of us. Yeah, there's. Yeah, you are in a very different environment. Uh, but for most of us, we're really not competing with each other. Um, and so pooling resources to the extent of having a summer program, bringing people in, I like it. But I still want to re- reiterate, it's got to be real resources. You know, don't pay people $2,500, which barely covers airfare two nights at the hotel, right? Do we have PhDs, we're, we're experienced professionals, we have real expertise, we have market value. Um, so if we're going to do that, let's do it right. 
And uh, so it's still maybe not of the sort of very high end of needing to create an endowment, but uh, it would take real resources. And I, I would not want to look at, the, you know, and a lot of things in PA, because we're public service or public sector, there's just this inherent automatic default that everything involved in this should be way cheaper than if we were doing this for business students. And maybe that's true to some degree, but that doesn't mean the faculty are any less valuable or the other resources that are involved are any less valuable. So it would have to be substantial real compensation for doing this. Cause even though we're committed to the field, that doesn't mean that we should be doing things for free. And that's, you know, something that we're asked to do all the time. You know, kind of along that line of, yeah, there's not many faculty of different races in MPA programs, and everybody wants to kind of have the appearance of being diverse. It feels like, at least from the outside looking in, if you are, you know, a person of color, you know, no matter what race that is, you're going to end up being asked to serve on all the extra committees. You're going to kind of have that extra burden being pushed towards you because they want to have that representation and yet at the same time that there's not necessarily the compensation that helps make up for that yeah i mean women suffer it as well and then women of color get it the absolute worst but absolutely yeah that's it's a it's just another version of the black tax uh, or, yeah it's called the black tax but anyone who's underrepresented is going to pay that tax and when you've got multiple layers of you know you're basically of intersectionality to your underrepresentativeness, it's going to be even bigger. All universities do this. Um, you know, some, you know, the really, really well off ones, um, that have huge faculties and can sort of, um, spread the burden very widely. They're maybe a little better about it, but it's just a, a reality of life in some places. Um, I, you know, and until we broadly diversify the Academy, that's not really going to change. I've been very clear uh, at some of the places I've worked at where, you know, they wanted to include me in diversity recruitment, uh, brochures and so forth. And there have been times where I refuse. I believe that like, look, if you're going to say you're committed to diversity, then I need to see some commitment. It is perfectly fine to say that you're really interested in seeing it happen and or that you're cool if it happens and you won't get in the way. But once you say the word committed, then I need to see something. And I'm not I'm not at all interested in allowing you to give the appearance that you are diverse when you're not doing any work to make it better. Right. A, um, a commitment without action or resources is, is not a commitment. Yep. Like I used to say all the time, you know, why don't you say that you're cool if it happens? Back in the summer, there were a a lot of the MPA programs kind of released statements of support for the Black community with everything that was going on. As a white male who you know hasn't really experienced everything that you and or others have had to go through, a lot of those statements kind of felt a little bit disingenuous. Uh, almost kind of like there's a, a problem that's going on, so we're going to give lip service to it, even though this is by no means a new problem. I don't know. I guess for me, I kind of associate that back with you know what you were just saying about it's one thing to say that you have you know the interest of diversity and bringing and supporting in minority students, minority faculty, but it's something else when it comes to actually following through with it. Yeah, you mind if I jump on this? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I think I would actually be a little bit generous. I'd put it into sort of three bins. Um, so, yes, I think there were some people where they may have been just disingenuous uh, pro forma. I have to answer this. There was also, I think, a large group of people who wanted to do something but didn't exactly know what to say. and And that's understandable. And then there is another group that is under pressure, connect, as Dan was saying, connect action to their words. And so when I looked at sort of the ranges of responses, I wasn't at all surprised. 
because people are still feeling their way through this moment and trying to position where they should be without really like, you're right. None of this was new, but for the, for public opinion to break the way that it did, I think caught almost everyone off guard. And so I would much rather have somebody put out a tepid statement than, um, go all in on some sort of meaningless uh, list of jargon that really doesn't connect to any action at all. Um, I'm okay with people trying to learn how to do this in real time. I agree with that. I, I thought this was a different moment. It was it, it struck the public conscious in a different way. I heard from people I haven't heard from in a long time about this. And I felt like it made good sense for everyone to get something out there to just sort of pile on, frankly, make it clear that this is something everyone's thinking about. That said, um, again, I, I, I actually do completely agree with what Dom said, and I do think we should continue to figure out. The only thing I just would add is I hope people keep in mind that there are things that don't make the headlines um, and there are things that, um, you know, maybe aren't, aren't national attention worthy, but they're internal to our families that on a regular basis make it so that it's just not a day I'm going to get any research done because I'm not in the mood after thinking about the latest, you know, family member to die, you know, giving birth because she was probably, you know, not given the sort of equal attention she would have gotten if she weren't black or whatever it may be. Yeah. If, these things happen frequently, multiple times per year. Not a single month goes by that I don't have at least a couple of days where my mind isn't substantially distracted by the realities of what it means to be black in America. I don't think I've actually ever really th thought about it from that context before, but. So, and, this, and I want to, tie this back to some of the things we talked about originally. I mean, you know, Dan's one of my best friends in the field. Like, um, well, I won't even say in the field. Dan's one of my best friends. Um, and so much of our conversation is just around, like, the energy it takes to just deal with some of this stuff. And not having places or people to talk to about it, uh, where people think you're bringing up race again, or, you know, can't connect or are just going to say something to piss you off. And so having this community and I want to say, I think Dan pointed this out, like minority women go through this so much worse than what we do. Just catching it from all sides. And in many ways, I know the struggle for me is I sometimes even feel bad calling attention to those bad days because I don't want to do anything to distract from the challenges that minority women face, particularly black women. Like if we're going to focus some energy, do that first. Uh, I often feel guilty that I even want to take up time to complain about it. And, and then you know that it's not even worth bringing up to people who don't have this lived experience because it's, I mean, what are you going to get out of it? They just don't know what they're, what you're talking about. At best, you might distract them for a couple hours too. I mean, it's just, it feels like a contagion. Um, and also just give you some idea of how this infuses every aspect of life. My family plotted out a course for going on vacation this summer uh, driving and we felt very comfortable with our plan from a COVID-19 perspective, all the mitigation you might need. And the only thing that actually stopped us from going in the end was given my kids' ages, I couldn't work out a plan to drive the distance we wanted to go without driving at night. And that was an unacceptable risk to me to drive at night and maybe get killed on vacation. Yep. Oh, man. Sorry, I'm, I'm just... It's literally stuff that I just never really stopped 
and thought much about, you know, we talk right now a lot about with everything going on, the pandemic, giving students a little bit more of a break, understanding the situation, the very nature of whatever their situation might be. But I don't think I've ever really heard anybody talk about that in a context of different, you know, I, our, our students are coming from very differing places. And I think a lot of times we come with our own perception of how they should be, how they should think, how they should act, not necessarily what situations they themselves are actually in. I would say in the context of COVID-19 right now, where every faculty member everywhere is working double and triple time, all faculty need some grace right now. They're not getting any, really. Nobody's getting any grace. It's just we have to reserve it all for the students. I get it. Students deserve grace, and I'm giving it. I'm doing things I've never done before, Uh, you know, extra credit, excuses for homework, um, open book testing. I'm doing it. I'm a believer in it. It, it's It's a part of where we are. But faculty are not getting afforded any grace really anywhere. And then when you layer on top of that, the fact that I have to think about, uh, you know, my four family members, they were all on my wife's side, but it's my family. Four of them died of COVID-19. And, you know, it's, again, the everyday things of, you know, I I can't necessarily jump for joy if, you know, a black woman in my family uh, starts getting in her last trimester, because I know it starts to get dangerous for her, uh, for black women. You know, both my children were born okay, ultimately, but uh, my my wife was in perilous condition in both both times. And so um, there are just things that, you know, sort of eat away at our ability to fully enjoy things to fully escape things it's always there something i was thinking about dan's discussion of the trip and i mean here's the thing like you're talking to the sons of police officers both of us generally have a positive disposition of the field in the profession at the same token my father was raising black sons and there were towns that he told us not to drive through and told us which officers we need to be aware of. So this isn't just some sort of knee jerk. um, Oh my goodness. I saw this on the news. No dance discussion about thinking about driving at night. One, it's something almost every black male I've ever known has thought about. And I've had my own experiences with having to navigate those situations. But even as somebody who's, you know, generally positively predisposed towards policing and police officers, it's still there. That concern never goes away. That's correct. And like Dom said, my dad would literally tell me officers, officers he knew, officers who would be in my house. If he said, if you encounter this person outside of this house, you call me right away. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, thinking from the faculty perspective, knowing that one, our colleagues are facing similar types of things. We also have students that have those similar experiences and similar moments of just kind of extra stress that the rest of us don't face. How can somebody like me, who's a white male, either help support, be there for, encourage, basically, I guess, what can somebody like me do to help your thoughts on this, Tom? Sure. So I think a couple of things. So one, um, it'd be a big help just in general if our non-minority colleagues decided this was their fight too and they were going to take some of this on. And that doesn't necessarily mean to lead the charge. Some of it can be just lending their support, but also rolling up their sleeves to do some of this work. Like like I said, I think that most people are interested in seeing things get better. They're okay if things get better. They're not really interested in doing the work. And so, and then that leads to great levels of distrust. So, you know, if people step up and 
we can actually see them working well with minority students or uh, supporting particularly minority junior faculty members, you know, when they may not be sure they can say no, saying we're giving this person too much work, we're giving them too much opportunities. I mean, not opportunities, but asking them too many responsibilities. So using your voice to help amplify those voices is absolutely tremendous. And I think that's where a lot of this needs to start. And some of it is also just being really honest about the state of things. I am so exhausted by this idea that we're going to lose another generation of minority students waiting for this mythological diversity group to show up to educate them when, quite frankly, our white colleagues just have to say, you know what, I'm committed to educating every student that comes in this classroom, regardless of background, and I'm going to do all I can to make those students feel welcome, supported, and that this is a place they can thrive. Waiting for us to get enough minority faculty until we have critical mass to pull that off, I'm just not interested in losing another generation of students because of that. And I don't have anything to add to what Dom said, which I think was great, and I completely agree with it, except to say that if you are in a position you know, at UD, we did dramatically increase the diversity of our faculty, and we're really proud of that. But if you don't achieve that, there are lots of ways to still have the students engaged to a very high degree to underrepresented minorities. They're, they're out there in the working world right around your university. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're a little further away. Maybe you've got to come up with plane tickets. Maybe you got to cover hotels. But you can have people interface with students if you really want it to happen. Right now, while, you know, internet interfacing, web interfacing is normal, it's, just, it's normalized right now. I mean, there's really no excuse not to be putting all sorts of different faces in front of students. And I hope that norm lasts. I know there's a lot of reasons not everyone's happy with Zoom University. Ironically, Dom and I have talked about this and both agree, actually, we think our classes are going better than they have in a while. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, you know, there are there are reasons that Zoom University is not everyone's favorite. But right now, we've democratized the ability to bring in all sorts of different people. This summer, I was on a webinar with Austin Goolsby. That was not a situation that would ever happen if it were in person. And so I, we have the ability to think bigger and broader about who our students uh, see and who they interact with. And again, just to throw another basic thing that a lot of different fields do, uh, old school mentorship program, have, have mentors, pay them a stipend, cover it when they take the students to coffee. Right? There are things you can do. And so even if it's you know a, a not diverse faculty, if the faculty themselves commit as Dom says, to teaching every student of every type. If you're worried about that engagement aspect, there are other, other ways to get there. And frankly, given the medium to long-term prospect of academic hiring in our field, we're going to have to think very seriously about that because very few places are going to do significant hiring. Yeah, I think very few places are going to do any kind of hiring, it seems like, for her a while. I'm kind of thinking about something that was said more towards the beginning of the conversation that, you know, having what it is that kind of helped bring your know, Dominic to campus, having that experience of that diverse group coming, having that campus visit weekend. I know Dan, you alluded to that also being a, you know, a good way of doing it, providing the opportunities for people to see and engage on multiple different levels. Yeah, we, we all have alumni networks even if it's that network is you know fairly dispersed, we do have the access of whether it's Zoom or some other medium to bring those networks together to allow people to engage in ways that they really haven't in the past. I'm thinking of whether it's on a NASPA side or setting up an ASPA side or even an ABFM to set up where we invite people to come in and talk on a Zoom session about careers and public finance and as a way to invite students in to engage and actually be able to see people from different communities in you know real time that way. The fundamental problem in my opinion at least is that 
public administration is widely dispersed but doesn't have great scale. So we have lots of programs, but we graduate a small fraction of MBA pro, uh, students. So we have this widely distributed network of schools with very low scale. So even where to begin on pooling resources, making things inherently coherent between places is a, a harder job. And when you have scale, you have professional, so you know most MBA programs are no longer run by faculty, they're run by staff. Um, or if they're faculty, they may be clinical or non-tenure track. And so they're really thinking about that program pretty much 24 seven. It's pretty easy for them to connect with other directors like them and to create things very quickly. We're very different. It's part of our workload. It's just another thing we have to do. There's no money, you know, behind it. And so, you know, I, I don't, that's just really my way of saying I understand why we haven't solved this yet because we have this more underlying issue of being widely dispersed with no scale. And we to, to get there, we're going to have to have some sort of legitimate discussion about this um, and figure out how to bring schools and programs together. I do want to say, I want to give some credit to Kyle Farnbury at Rutgers. Uh, he's gone on to do other things at Rutgers. I believe he's an associate dean or a dean now, right, Don? Something like that? No. Uh, he's back in the department. Oh, he's he's back in the department. Well, I want to give him some credit. Like, what was it? Almost 15 years ago plus, he, he did try to overcome this issue with a program called Diversity in Academia, which thought about diversifying the field in a way that wasn't unique to a certain school or department, that wasn't unique to a certain association. He did get some backing from ASPA and maybe other organizations, I'm not sure. And, you know, I went to at least one of those sessions when I was a doctoral student at the University of Georgia. I went with a good friend of mine, Jared Lorenz at Louisiana State. And, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of underrepresented people in that room. And I, so I don't know where they all went off um, to and what they've done, but that's just to say that there have been attempts to think broader beyond the program level. And I think some uh, attempt to go back to those days is, is, is much in order. I would definitely agree. I think as much as we do as a field in different kind of ways for different things. I think having a concerted effort that is not institution-based, but field-based is definitely probably not only a good thing, but the right thing to do. It probably requires some sort of summit in some, you know, appropriate venue, whether NASPA, ASPA, APA, I don't know where it is, but some sort of group brought together to really think about this and, chart it out and then decide where the resources can come from and then who's going to implement it with the, you know, got to give the caveat now before this theoretical idea even takes off. It cannot be another thing that the underrepresented minorities on faculty are left to do. Yes. Right. And I encourage people to be creative. I know we say this a lot, but I think it's really important to understand that black people are not monolithic Minorities are not monolithic. And I've seen so many recruitment efforts just die before they even get started because the attitude is so self-defeating. Um, you know, would somebody come here? We don't have a lot of diversity already, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. Look, so, you know, I lived in New England for a while in a state that was not particularly diverse. And I know there was always some concern about diversity recruitment. And what I tried to explain to them was that this area was not foreign to a lot of people I went to high school with. My friend's family had ski houses in the area. They would come up here for winter and they would come up here for a variety of different things. So the Black experience is just as diverse as any other experience. And so it is possible that you might be the exact location that this particular candidate is looking for. But I've been on interviews where it was, the energy was just so bad. It was like, you all don't really want me here, do you? Because uh, you're not trying to sell me. As a matter of fact, you're trying to talk me out of this. I can't, um, I can't tell you how many times I've been told after a search is wrapped, 
well, you know, we were really thinking about you, but assumed you would never come here. Right. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. Okay. Um, it's like, you know, that that's that e- even outside the underrepresented minority discussion. Yeah. That's just a terrible way to go about uh, getting talent. That's like, you would never, you know, Google or Facebook or name whatever company that you admire would never say, oh, you know, we, you know, we thought that person would be really great, but they wouldn't come. So we didn't bother interviewing. I mean, you go after the people you want. (laughs) Which happens all the time. Which always leaves you with the question, like, are they saying that to be nice or what is that? But yeah, it's very, it's extremely common. Uh, I've been on interviews, dinners where people are like, would you be comfortable here? Do you think you'd like, it's America. I'm good. I'll be fine. I can navigate this. And I cut my own hair, so I don't need a barber. <laughs> yeah, I've been asked a lot of stuff on interviews, but I've never been asked if I would be comfortable there. I mean, it's a good discussion to have just with some candidates. Um, it it's at least signals that you care. And I will say, now that I've got two kids, that it is a little bit of a different discussion for me. But, you know, this idea that we weren't even going to talk to you, that's just not... I mean, how can you say you're committed to diversity and you make that decision for me? Yep. Yeah. No, I've told people at various times, let them tell us no. It's not our job to decide for them. They have agency, they're adults. They know it's best for their family situation. We don't know what their family situation is. So we shouldn't presume that based on uh, their race or ethnicity. I can't stress that enough, what Dom says. You just never know. A lot of times there's just this very specific, it's like, oh, that, that place actually works really great for me for this reason that you yeah. never could have guessed. Yep. I thought I would be in College Station for three years. I stayed 13. It worked for me. I know you both have many, many other things to do with your time than sit here and talk to me, but I want to thank you both for coming on and for talking with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much.